WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. This is Emmanuel Berry, and you are tuned into Impact Exposure. Today on the show, we learn about the MSU comic book collection and are joined by the author of the American folk song book, Susie Bowes. But first, the news. In local news, the Lansing School Board plans to interview two consultants to help it come up with restructuring options. The district already faces a deficit of up to $20 million for the 2012-2013 school year. In national news, some Michigan residents may have felt a rumble of a 5.9 magnitude earthquake that shook up most of the East Coast. The quake was centered northwest of Richmond, Virginia. Part of the Pentagon, White House, and Capitol were evacuated. And in the world today, according to NPR, Libyan rebels have taken control of Gaddafi's compound. Fighters poured inside the fortress-like complex and raised the opposition flag over Gaddafi's personal residence. Gaddafi's current location, however, remains unknown. And that's the news. Later, we'll hear uh, about MSU professors who are launching a new field of water research. But first, I am joined in studio by MSU Associate Professor and of Geography and Michigan State Climatologist Jeff uh, Andreessen, who is working to help farmers deal with changing climates and growing seasons. Welcome to Exposure. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, uh, first question I have for you. So, what are some of the changes that we are seeing in climate and growing seasons that, that farmers are witnessing, and how is, how is it affecting them? Well, longer term, there are a couple that, uh, that really stand out. One is it's, it's uh, ever since the 1930s, it's gradually become wetter in Michigan and uh, much of the upper Midwest, about uh, 10 to 15 percent wetter than it used to be. Uh, and for agriculture, that's, that's actually a positive thing. Our water is uh, probably the single greatest limitation to, to, uh, to food production in the region, so that's a good thing. It's also become wetter, or warmer, sorry, uh, during the last couple decades, especially since about 1980. But uh, in contrast to the increase in precip, which is pretty much spread all around the year, the warming is occurring mainly uh, in the winter, the cold season, and at night. So uh, the summers haven't changed that much, and, uh, uh, but warmer and, uh, and wetter is the, the general direction. That, uh, and actually, as it's become wetter, uh, it's maybe hard for some to believe, but it's actually a little cloudier as well. We have more wet days than, uh, than we used to have uh, on, on average. So collectively, that's, that's a direction at least we've been uh, over the last few decades. Yeah, it seems like this summer it's either been extremely hot and kind of dry mm-hmm. or there's been torrential rain and downpour for kind of days. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, what this means financially for farmers? Well, it, it depends. As you mentioned, one of the one of the real challenges is, is of course, there are long-term trends, and, and we're only looking at, at small changes over long periods of time. But between any given year, we have sometimes huge changes. And uh, this was a great example. Uh, looking back a couple of years in 2009, we had a very, very cool summer, a very, very well, a long growing season uh, that uh, that ended well somewhat abruptly. And that was followed by one of the warmest growing seasons on record last year in 2010. And, uh, well, uh, farmers' uh, farmers' profits and economic margins depend on how the crops do, and they're, they're very, very sensitive to these, uh, these changes. So depending on whether uh, we're wetter or drier than normal or too, 
too warm, uh, too cool at certain times. This year, the problem was a very, very wet, cool spring, and that caused major delays uh, with with farmers trying to plant. And uh, when they when they have to plant later than they'd like to, uh, it well, it opens them up to more problems later on. And and probably some of the crops here in Michigan were hurt by that excessive heat we uh, we all remember i'm sure <laughs> yeah. uh, back in for much of july so it's it's just a it's a very very complicated set of decisions that the the farmers faced with and many of them depend directly on the weather and the again it's it's very difficult year to year to know what to expect we frequently joke that we have climatological normals they tell us a lot about the the average of climate in a given time of the year, uh, the summer or the winter or whatever, but we rarely ever experience them because we're usually on one side uh, above or way below, uh, depending on the year. And, and, and this, again, this growing season has been uh, another example of that. So can you talk a little bit about what your research and your project, uh, what the aims are and what you hope to do with it to, to help um, with this climate change? Right. Well, there are, there are several, um, but one is overall I think the major theme is what we've just discussed or talked about a little bit is to try and maybe make some sense out of, out of this seemingly random pattern of, of variability and help farmers maybe with some rules of thumbs based on, on history uh, are there ways that we can help reduce the the risk associated with with weather and climate? We're going to be looking at the early part of the growing season and how how quickly growers can get into the fields. We're also going to be looking at the end of the season with uh, grain moisture and quality, which is a major economic factor for the growers. The more moisture they have in the grain, typically the more money or the more money they can potentially lose. They have to dry the moisture out of the grain. So the project, one of the the goals is to come up with well, basically information that will help them to make decisions. We're also looking at the way that decisions are made in general, uh, especially relative to weather, uh, how risk-averse a person is. But how, how does one make the decisions when you're, you have all that money on, on the line? And then finally, uh, we also are going to consider the future. Uh, given projections of uh, a warmer climate in the future, what might that entail? For, uh, for our agricultural industry uh, well here and across the region. And there, there, there are probably some major changes that will uh, have, to, have to come about or take place if those projections are true. Uh, how important is it for, for people in, in general and, and farmers, I guess, to, to take these, this information seriously? Because um, I feel like some people are still kind of like, oh, it's a fluke. Right. It's a, it's no, that's a, fluke, that's a, a very, fluke, very good question. And I think uh, we work with people in the real world quite a bit, and, and there, there always is there's hesitance. Uh, well, with the information that we hope to provide, ultimately, my guess is it will be probably a part of information that, that an individual looks at and considers to make a decision. And, and hopefully it's, it's a reference type of information that they can use in the background and then maybe using other pieces of information then make, make a choice uh, or, or try to uh, decide what to do. So I don't think we'll ever see one particular piece of information used exclusively to, to do uh, to do something, but we hope that it, it probably, and, and rightfully so, it should be part of a mix of information that, that the grower considers. But uh, up until now, there really is not much help in terms of this year-to-year variability uh, of climate on how to prepare for that, how to, how to better deal with that. And, and, again, minimize the risk. And we, we think that there is some skill. There is information there. It just has to be we have to do the research to understand how it works, uh, 
well, we have to understand better how that works. <laughs> and then hopefully, again, come up with, with some rules of thumb that, that the individual can use to, to make a better choice. So time-wise, is, is this going to be something that we're going to be able to, people are going to be able to start to adjust next year and they're going to see the benefits of it? Or is this, is this going to take time and kind of have to continue to evolve It'll, and adapt? It will probably be in, in stages. And, and uh, it's a five-year project, but we hope to have most of the research completed uh, by, well, by the end of the third year. And we should know by then how valuable what are, or how, how valuable or how useful our results will be. And uh, so uh, for the particular part of the project that I'm working on, it's, it starts right at the beginning and we have to, we have to we're, we're already uh, at work trying to uh, start to decipher, again, these climatological series and, and what, what they mean. So uh, I, would, I would say the stage type of, uh, of output, uh, but mainly through years three, four, and five, well, when we, we'll see most of the, uh, hopefully the results go out and, and be used by people. So what, after this project is completed and, and you provide these farmers with the information, what do you think is going to be the hardest part of, of getting them to actually implement your suggestions? Do you, do you think people uh, are going to be willing to listen, or is that part of the plan well, also? Well, that all depends on us. And if, if we don't have good information, uh, I don't blame them if they, uh, <laughs> they, they don't take it seriously or don't, don't use it. But uh, so the, the really the impetus is on us to come up with something that is useful. Uh, every individual views this a little bit differently, and some people would say, well, I won't use this type of, uh, of information unless it's accurate more than 90% of the time or more than half the time or whatever the case may be. It, all, it varies by person. So uh, a lot of it will depend on the individual, but the better, the more accurate, uh, the more skill that we can come up with, uh, obviously the better the chances are that we'll see it actually utilized. People, seeing is believing, I think, and mm -hmm. it's especially true with this. And uh, a farmer who has, uh, well, hundreds of thousands, in some cases millions of dollars riding on, on these decisions about weather and climate, they're not going to take this lightly and just say, well, here, we'll, we'll base all of our, uh, these big decisions on, on this new information. I think usually have to, to show the value and demonstrate the, the usefulness first. And that's, that's part of the project. Hopefully mm -hmm. we can do that as well uh, and, and get people at least introduced to this and how to use it. So what method are you guys using to collect this information? Is it large-scale surveying or...? It's, um, uh, there's a, there is some surveying going on, especially with regard to how people make decisions, and some of the people on the project are, are social scientists, and that's their, that's their expertise and trying to, again, understand how is it that what do people think about, uh, how do they make the decision. The part of the project that I work on, it's, uh, it's more, uh, well, physical, historical data and projections of the future, looking at the climate part and then uh, putting, plugging that in, in turn into a, a model that, that tries to simulate what, what uh, Mother Nature does with, with crops and how they, uh, they behave and, and understanding, putting the two together and looking for patterns. So that's, that's the part that I'll be working on. So it's, there's a number of different techniques and approaches that, that we use, but uh, it's, it's a lot of modeling and, uh, well, and classic climatology, looking for, for patterns and for trends. And uh, my last question before I let you go, um, so is the climate going to change to such an extreme amount that maybe farmers will have to retool what they're planning um, and, I mean, kind of everything, the entire system? Do you think that that's something that may happen in the near future? My guess, personally, uh, my opinion is, well, 
to your question to begin with, oh, if we look down the road, decades uh, or, well, 50, 60, 70 years, I think probably the answer is yes. Uh, there will have to be significant changes. But for the short term, uh, probably not. There's just so much so much of this variability year to year, it's hard to see the long-term changes. So mm-hmm. uh, I guess it's a yes and no or no and yes <laughs> uh, in, in, in this case. But I think uh, several decades out, though, there's no question that, that the changes that are projected would definitely necessitate. And some of those changes uh, here, especially in the, the upper Midwest, might not be all negative. Some might be positive, but there'll probably be a, a mix of, uh, of positive and negative. So uh, the growers have to continually, though, adapt and, and cope with those changes in order to stay in business. And that's that's part of why uh, well, farming is is a real challenge. It's a wonderful, noble profession, but it has it has a lot of uh, of unknowns. And weather and climate are is, is are are two of those unknowns. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Exposure. That was Jeff Andres, an MSU Associate Professor of Geography and Michigan State Climatologist. He is working to give farmers tools to better understand changes in climate. Thanks again. My pleasure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. variety than you'll hear on any other station. Listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw. Check out these pics of this huge tree falling. You probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. You are so smoking hot. I love your elbows. Wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now. Dude, what the f? So why would you send a text while driving? Well, that's different. That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now, it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and 200 bucks after that. Ouch. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're making out. Aw, come back, cuddle bunny. You need help. 88.9 The Impact. Now back to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. Patricia Serrano, Serrano, Associate Professor of Fisheries and Wildlife, has received a $2.2 million National Science Foundation grant to gauge land, land use and climate change's impact on freshwater ecosystems, and in the process, pioneer the research field of landscape limnology. Today, we are joined by Patricia and her collaborator on the project, Kendra Chiravelli. Uh, so first, what is limnology? And am I even pronouncing that right? Yes, it's limnology. Limnology. Limnology itself is the study of inland waters, so lakes, streams, and wetlands. And what we've tried to do is develop sort of a subdiscipline within limnology called landscape limnology, which is looking at the spatially explicit study of lakes, streams, and wetlands, how they're all connected. And as they interact with each other and also with the surrounding land, and also with the surrounding human landscape, how we alter the land 
around lakes and streams and wetlands. And how how did you decide to to do this study? What what was it that why is it important to do this study? I guess. <laughs> well, Kendra and I have been doing this type of research probably for well over ten years now, and and we've really started studying lakes in particular has been our main focus, and we started realizing that too really understand a lot of environmental problems right now that are facing our fresh waters, such as climate change, land use change, invasive species, you kind of have to look at, you have to step back and look at a broader view of our fresh waters. So we can't just look at one lake and say, well, how is climate change going to affect Lake Lansing? Because Lake Lansing is connected to other streams, it's connected to wetlands, we have to take a much broader view. So when we Really, what we want to try to do research to study these environmental problems on our fresh waters, and we recognize that we needed to take a more holistic approach. So, so typically, I know this project is just starting, but kind of, I guess, what do you expect to find about how climate change has impacted these freshwater systems? Well, that's to be determined. Um, one way that we are studying climate change that is a little different than what's been done before. Um, I guess first I'd like to say that, you know, there's plenty of research out there studying climate change on individual lakes or Mm -hmm. groups of lakes. What we're trying to do is say, well, to really look at how large-scale climate uh, changes are going to affect fresh waters, we need to look sort of at the continent-wide scale. So... We need to collect data on, say, for our project, we're collecting data from Minnesota all the way to Maine. So we don't have the resources to go to every lake between Minnesota and Maine uh, to collect data. So what we're going to do is use data that's already in existence, that we can download from the Internet or that we can get from agencies. And so that's something kind of unique about our project, that we're collecting data where, well, we're collecting databases. We're not collecting actually data in the lake. So there's not going to be any going out in, in your bellies? And... <laughs> no, unfortunately, we're going to be trekking to our office, sitting at the computer, downloading data, calling people. Um, that's another unique aspect. We actually um, are going to be compiling data from all these different sources and trying to see what we can learn by comparing lakes in Michigan to lakes in Maine and everything in between. So that's what we hope to really find out is say, well, lakes in Minnesota might respond this way to climate change if the climate changes this way. Lakes in Maine actually are going to respond differently for these various reasons. And at this point, we don't know exactly what those differences are. That's what we're going to try to find out. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how how, find, how these findings can help um, preserve ecosystems and help us prepare um, maybe legislative-wise um, to, to protect these, these habitats? Kendra, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> well, that also um, is part of our project, is to try to be sure that what we're doing research on is directly applicable to conservation and to management. Um, In part by, I guess there's a couple things. One would be that we're using these agency data that have been collected um, and 
they're sitting around something they've been used for the specific purpose that they were collected but we're going to be able to put them all together and be able to ask questions that they maybe weren't able to ask about conservation and management before so i i think that's um that's definitely one of our goals for example you know we might think about the asian carp right the mm -hmm. how quickly it moves and what systems it's in depends a lot on how those systems are connected, which lakes are connected to other lakes through streams and that kind of thing. And so by able by us taking a very broad scale view of, of our research and being able to include lots of connected systems, we'll be able to, to um, get more information about where we might expect them to be in the future, which has conservation implications, of course, for endangered species that might be affected by those fish. Now, since you guys are working kind of on a regional scale, like this is a really large scale, is it going to be harder, or do you think, for your message to to get to people because it is such a larger um, group of people that you're trying to reach? That's a really good question. Um, you know, maps are really powerful tools, and a lot of our work relies on data that we get from maps, that we extract, and a lot of our results are then going to be translated back into maps. And I think actually that we, some of our results are going to make a lot of sense to people because we'll be able to put them in very visual terms. Mm -hmm. So some results I, I think people will understand because people are used to looking at weather maps. They're used to looking at, you know, maps for directions, how to get places. So I, I think, uh, I, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see. But you're right, a lot of people relate to freshwaters as their own lake, their lake that they live on, or the lake that they fish in. From that standpoint, it might be a little bit harder for people to understand, but I'm, I'm confident people will get it. Now, have you guys, you, you said you've, you've kind of studied the, the effects of climate change um, on bodies of water on a smaller scale before. Can you talk to me a little bit about what what some of those findings are? Um, and I guess if you expect to see similar patterns on the larger scale? Yeah, so a lot of our research we've done so far has actually been looking at the effect of land use change rather than climate, climate change. change. Okay. And so, for example, in Michigan, we've found that, you know, agriculture nearby a lake um, has more impact than agriculture farther away. And in particular, what we've found is that lakes that have streams flowing into them that have agriculture connected to those streams have the highest impact, so they have the most nutrients flowing into them. So that's a, that's a very clear example of where we, we need to look at connections between the lakes and the streams, because the streams are serving as basically conduits bringing the agricultural nutrients to the lake. And we've figured out models and tools to, to best measure that, uh, that relationship. So that's one example of, of what we're going to look at at the larger spatial scale. And when when are you guys gonna when does the study start and when can we expect to see results? Well, we had a, a kickoff uh, meeting back in June when the grant was first funded um, of all of our collaborators from Wisconsin and Iowa and Penn State and Ireland came here. Um, so it, it it started and we are placing calls as we speak <laughs> and trying to get data from lots of different states. We've started out. We have a database of lakes for six states so far that we're building from and so we're adding a bunch more um, of lakes and states worth of lakes into that database so we're we're collecting data 
it's probably going to be about a year before we have the data set really yeah. compiled. So that, that part will takes quite a while. Do you think it will be difficult, um, maybe in some states where they don't necessarily monitor water quality and that type of thing as much? Because, I don't know, maybe it's just not... I, I feel like in Michigan we're very, like, Great Lakes. Like, we need, <laughs> we need to take care of our water. Um, but maybe in some of the other places you're looking, that the data is going to be harder to find. Yes, we expect to see state-to-state -state differences. And actually, in Michigan, as a great example, you said the Great Lakes. We have quite a bit of data on the Great Lakes, but the inland lakes, not as much as you would think. Mm -hmm. And so there are large differences across the states about the amount of data and the frequency through time. We also want to go back in time and see how lakes have changed. Um, so there's each state is completely different. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me today on Exposure. Thank you. Thank you. That was Patricia Serena and Kendra Sharibal of MSU. Uh, they are researching land use and climate change impact on freshwater ecosystems. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking Helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building. Without all that, smoking. Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. Welcome back to Impact Exposure. Comic theme so song there to usher us into our next segment. Michigan State has a large comic book collection, one of the largest um, in the world, I believe. Um, and uh, today we welcome Randy Scott, comic bi bibliographer and assistant head special uh, head of special collections at MSU Libraries, uh, and he is here to talk to us today about MSU's extensive comic collection. Tongue-tied host today, that's what you got. <laughs> um, so welcome to Exposure. Thank you. All right. So talk to me a little bit about the history of how MSU's comic book collection got started. Well, it was back in about 1970. It's a little vague. Um, <laughs> there was an English professor named Russell Nye, 
who uh, was writing a book and teaching a course on popular culture, and he discovered the library couldn't support his work. So he went out and bought stuff and donated it to the library in great quantities. So that was it. So it started with nine, I guess. Yes. Uh, so talk about what the collection is today, um, the, the number and the range of comics that, that are in the collection. Well, the comics are part of a wider popular culture collection that Nye didn't focus on the comics. That was okay. my job. Gotcha. Um, the comics are the fastest growing part, and we're up to almost a quarter of a million comics items right now. Wow. Um, you know, this is in 41 years. So can you talk a little bit about um, some of maybe the rare finds that are in this collection? Well, even before Nye, um, someone had donated a complete collection of Rodolphe Topfer's work. Rodolphe Topfer was a Swiss novelist who got this idea in the 1840s to draw stories, and he published six or seven of them, depending how you count. And we have them all published from when he, when he was alive. So we have a wonderful trove of the very beginning of comics. Wow, that's that's amazing <laughs> to think about. And and you guys also have a, a large supply of uh, you know the DC and Marvel superhero comics that oh, yes, we uh, do. been made in so many movies this summer. <laughs> yeah, the oldest, very oldest ones, the ones that sell for a million dollars, those are on good color microfilm. But almost all the ones that uh, people would need to read, covering in the forties all the way through. About five years ago, we've had pretty complete runs of everything in the superhero or in the mainstream adventure line. We got it covered. So can you talk about the typical user of the comic book? Who comes to the library to, to check these out and use them? Comic book people aren't quite typical. <laughs> <laughs> we have... <laughs> We have undergrads who uh, have assignments that they come and use the collection for, and that's exactly, you know, centrally what we're there for. But we also have researchers that come flying in from Germany and Japan who spend two weeks and, and use their grant money studying comics here because this is the only place they can spend two weeks and expect to see everything they need to see about American comics. And how did you get into comics? How did you become one of those uh, comic book people, I guess? <laughs> well, I was normal until I got a job at the Curious Bookshop. Um, where, <laughs> you know, this is not a plug. You know, they, <laughs> they don't even sell comics anymore to speak of. But uh, I was the comics guy there. Um, they didn't pay me enough, so I got a job at the library. And I discovered that the comics weren't quite being respected enough, you know, mm -hmm. to my standards at the library. So... I got involved with in them as a volunteer in 1974, and it's been like full time ever since. And when when you were a kid, what were your what were the, your comics of choice? Batman, Superman, in that order, and then <laughs> the best was World's Finest Comics, which had both Batman and Superman in the same story. <laughs> Jackpot comments there. So you, you've been around in uh, comics for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about how comics have changed? Um, I, well, I mean, they've changed a lot, but I, I guess maybe in the last decade how comics have changed. Well, yeah, they, they do change a lot. And uh, my feeling is, and I'm not a scientist of this, but my feeling is that the mainstream is getting less important, you know, the Superman and Batman ones. Coincidentally, at the same time, the movies are coming out and, and boosting the genre. Yeah. Um, but alternative comics, you know, more personal views, more small press kinds of things are 
in an upsurge, and there's, we're just going to see a lot more of that in the future. And someday when people think of comics, they won't even think of superheroes. Now, a lot of people would ask, why would a university spend all this time collecting comics? Why would they put so much emphasis on having this collection? So what is the significance of this, I guess, for Michigan State and for comics in general? Why is it important to have them? Comics are a literature that had, for many years, not been paid much attention to, and it was a niche for us. Um, it wasn't necessarily planned that way. Russell and I gave us these comics, and we didn't know what to do with them, so we hid them in the basement. You know, <laughs> But it worked out fine, and uh, I've been sort of pushing that direction um, since I got involved in 74. That... Uh, it just goes without saying, as far as I'm concerned, that comics are an important cultural dimension that wasn't being paid attention to, and we had room, and it doesn't cost much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Most of our comics are donated. Can you, uh, uh, I'm just curious, are you a fan of the, the comic book hero movies, the comic book theme movies like Batman and Superman are not so much um, because you're... Uh, avid comic book fan in the sense of the literature. I do see the movies, almost all of them. I miss one once in a while, but I always like them. I'm not critical, you know? Okay. I'm just, <laughs> just curious to see I was if a you're kid like, once, oh. too. And, you know, I, you know, <laughs> I see the Fantastic Four done right, and tears come to my eyes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what, what can we expect? Are, are you picking out any special items for this year um, to add to the collection? Well, we've had a couple of wonderful things happen in the last week. Um, a big carload of Indian comics just landed on us from okay. the Asian Studies Department. And uh, another carload promised for next week is of Japanese comics from a scholar who spent a year in Japan, bought one of everything so he could write a book, which he did. <laughs> and now he's going to give us his carload of Japanese comics. So those are wonderful things. I didn't plan them. But on the other hand, we are sort of trying to get into Asian comics. We have mm -hmm. a great... Latin American and European collections. Um, so let's push Asia for a while. And that's what we're doing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come out and chat with me today. You're completely welcome. All right. That was Randy Scott, comic bibliographer and assistant head special of special collections at the MSU libraries here on Exposure. <laughs> Sweet words you 
Impact Exposure, we welcome musician C- Susie Bogus, the platinum-selling songstress, who is now author. Uh, she released American Folk Songbook, and she's here to talk about her new book and uh, her CD, and we just heard a track off of that, Red River Valley. Uh, so welcome to Exposure, Susie. Hey, how are you doing, Emmanuel? I am doing good. I'm having I'm having an interesting show tonight, to say the least. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. Yeah, know? yeah. I hope I'm entertaining people. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so what inspired you to write this book? Well, you know, I did the CD first, and um, I had been really inspired to do the CD uh, from a tour I did with Garrison Keeler from A Prairie Home Companion. Um, and we'd been out, and he, you know, he, we did this really kind of crazy tour. It was like 21 shows in 25 days, and it was, you know, going, cutting back and forth all over the, the country. And... I mean, we'd, we'd get on a jet at night, fly two to four hours, you know, and end up in another time zone. And then uh, in Garrison's show, you know, he kind of regionalizes everything. So he was, um, you know, he was writing the show as we were traveling to the next <laughs> city. And and then, you know, we had rehearsals every day so we could, you know, get prepared for the, you know, sort of whatever jokes he was going to play on that community. So, um the cool thing was is that during intermission, it was a three-hour show, mm-hmm. and he would do a sing-along. He never left the stage for three hours. And um, and he would get all these people singing along, and he would 
pull things out of his hat, you know, Everly Brothers or the Beatles or hymns or these old folk songs. And uh, a lot of times he would do Red River Valley. And the audience, just, I mean, thousands of people standing up, singing along. It was just, it was overwhelming for me. Yeah. I just started bawling, you know. Yeah. Um, but the thing was, is that people that were 30 and below, <laughs> not many of them knew the words. <laughs> and as I kind of, like, started, like, just started sinking into me, um, it made me think about when I went to my kids' school and I, you know, tried to um, kind of get them in a sing-along. And I thought, man, uh, you know, this was a few years ago, and he was in fourth grade. So they're like, you know, eight, nine years old. And these kids were already intimidated and already feeling like, you know, hey, if I'm not American Idol material, I shouldn't be singing, you <laughs> yeah. know. And I just thought it was really sad because the way I grew up, it was all about sort of a release. It was almost like recess. You went to music class. You just blew it out and you yelled and, you know, and, and did your best and learned stuff every time you were there. And um, I just got to thinking, you know, maybe we need to go back and sort of look at these old American folk songs and just see if there's, there's still a catalyst there between all the generations. So why was it important that you, you took old folk songs and, and, and retooled them um, for, for children to learn? Well, part of it was because, you know, these are the songs that I grew up with. I mean, that's, that's very vain sounding. But, <laughs> Everyone you know, listen to was, my music. Yeah, <laughs> what I like. Wow. Um, but a lot of it was that I really felt from audience members in my own shows that, um, that there was this kind of, um, you know, thing that we all shared together, mm-hmm. which were these songs that came up from our culture, you know, and as I got into researching for the book and stuff, I really found that a lot of them kind of came up at this at the same time period, which was a bunch of these songs that I picked came up right around the uh, Industrial Revolution and when they were um, building the railroads and when you know the Civil War had just finished. So it was um, it was kind of interesting to me just historically. Um, how these all kind of came together, which I had never really put that together before. I always mm-hmm. just thought, well, these are our American songs, and I had no idea how old any of them were. You know, I just didn't have that much background on them. So why was it that these songs at some point kind of missed a generation or get lost, or why, why do you think that is? Well, sadly, I think a lot of it has to do with how much time kids get to spend with music in their schools now. I mean... I'm not like, you know, like on a big soapbox about this, but, you know, like when I was in school, that was just part of our curriculum. And I find, you know, I'm from a little town in Illinois. Um, I find that um, in order for these music teachers to keep their jobs, they're having to, like, make it a more serious subject. And, you know, young kids really, they need, you know, inspiration by fun. And I wanted music to entertain them more so that they would actually experience it and and be you know think of it as fun as not like here's another math class where i have to learn the circle of fourths and fifths you know and um you know that you know that comes later but first you have to see if you really have any um you know you have any love past just having fun with music so that was kind of you know one of my big soapboxes i guess that i was uh, you know just experiencing 
Now, have you ever written a, a book before? No. No. So <laughs> what, what was this experience like, your first book? It's terrifying. <laughs> the worst thing ever. Um, you know, here's the problem is that, you know, I got into researching this stuff and, you know, doing the whole Library of Congress and everything and finding all these, uh, you know, great stories. Really, uh, a lot of these songs had fascinating uh, backgrounds and, and some of them had like three or four points of view. And so, you know, I'm not a historian and I'm not a writer or, I mean, maybe I will be someday, but I'm a beginner right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it was like trying to make the book, but I'd started out with the CD project with just try to be simple, deliver the melodies. You know, um, you know, I did the sheet music for all this stuff with my piano player and, you know, we just went through it and I said, no simpler, no simpler, because he's a jazz player, you know. It's like, yeah. no, we need to make it so that all levels can play this stuff so that, you know, a grandma who just had, a, you know, a few piano lessons when she was a little girl can teach these to her grandkids or, you know, in in my case, you know, my, my attorney that I've had for years and years, um, is, you know, she's kind of an old hippie, and I <laughs> called her up in L.A., and I said, you know, I'm doing this book and stuff, and I... You know, she didn't really, you know, she was like, okay, good, okay, fine, you know. But when I sent it to her, she said, oh, my God, I got my guitar out from under my bed. <laughs> Just the reaction And that's like, that's what I want to do. I want mm-hmm. people to sing along and have fun and share those songs. And, um, you know, like I say, you know, it's, in, it's a lot of the songs that really struck me when I was a kid. But I also went to other friends of mine and, and kind of got their list. Well, what would you guys do if you were doing your, you know, your desert island list of folk songs? What would it be? And I was, I was amazed to find out that really uh, there were really only about maybe five or six songs that we didn't all have in that list. So, um, you know, it ended up that I picked some other ones because I didn't want to repeat myself with, um, you know, particular styles or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you have a favorite song um, from the album? Um, probably Shenandoah. That was the first one I picked. I mean, when I was a kid, that was just, I grew up on the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, that song was always really special. Um, you know, I, it, it was something that I took pride in trying to sound pretty when I sang it. Yeah. And, um, you know, most of these recordings I did initially with my guitar player, sort of, you know, in the same room at the same time and just left them alone because it it was, I was trying to like kind of capture my innocence for, for what I, you know, what I would have done had I never had experience in other fields of music, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Or been a professional musician. I was trying to just go back to Susie, the fifth grader, Susie, the girl scout or whatever. and just like <laughs> sort of lay it out there and say, all right, y'all, you know, yeah, there's some bad notes in there, but it's okay. Cause I'm telling you how it, how it felt to sing that song. Yeah, that's that's one of the songs that I I did know off the album Shenandoah. I, Yay, I remember that good. one in <laughs> high school choir class or something like that. Uh, oh yeah. And this album, you had a lot of people collaborate with you. Um, can you talk about some of the people who joined you? Well, um, largely it's my guitar player Pat Bergeson who'll be with me at the Ark, and Charlie Chadwick, who's my bass player, who will be with me at the Ark. Um, Fred Carpenter is playing uh, fiddle with us, 
and you know has played with me since the late '80s, <laughs> and um, it's a it's a really um, stripped down version of all these songs. I have Jerry Douglas playing steel and Stuart Duncan playing some fiddle. Um, I have a couple of songs that I have uh, a little bit of brushes on the on a snare drum, and I have a banjo player named Richard Bailey who plays with the steel drivers. Who's you know, he's out, out, outrageous, great. And then my two girlfriends, Matresa Berg and Gretchen Peters, lended some uh, nice vocals. So, you know, these are just all buddies. And I really, you know, I could have gone crazy and just said, hey, you know, let me, you know, put everybody's name on here that I know. Yeah. But that was really not the idea. The idea was really to keep it as, um, as, simple and as honest and genuine as possible so you know 11 out of 17 songs i didn't even go back to try to fix a note you know i just said that's it i sang it so there it is and you know that was that was kind of the concept was you know let's just have some fun with some old folk music that we all love and you have a show coming up uh in michigan you're going to be playing in ann arbor at the arc this friday correct one of my favorite places in the whole country to play. Well, glad to hear that uh, one, a place in Michigan is one of your favorites. Well, thank you so much for uh, <laughs> taking the time to talk with us today. Well, I appreciate you telling folks about the project. I appreciate it. Yep, no problem. Uh, and I thought I'd take us out with a tune from your album. Uh, this is off of Susie's American Folk Songbook CD. Uh, it's titled Wayfaring Stranger here on The Impact. I am a Traveling through this world of woe, but there's no sickness toward a danger in that bright world to which I go.
For this week's Michigan Storytelling segment, our author Steve Amick shares a story from an upcoming collection of short stories titled Ghost Writers, Us Haunting Them, Contemporary Michigan Literature. Storytelling segment, I'm Steve Amick. This is a short story about real-life Harry Bennett, who was Henry Ford's union buster and famously owned a castle where he lived in a very paranoid way with lions and tigers in Ann Arbor. Uh, it, it appears right now in the Cincinnati Review and will appear in a story anthology from the Wayne State University Press, edited by Keith Taylor and Laura Kozischke, called Ghost Writers, Us Haunting Them, Contemporary Michigan Literature. The tunnel branched, giving him options. Besides getting to the river, you could sneak through a sliding cabinet into the hidden Roman bath, or out of it and away, when he had to whisk out abroad he'd snuck in for a little action. One branch led to a spiral staircase, a tight squeeze up to the watchtower. But if you went the other way, down at the end, if you took the wrong turn, you'd be sorry. Down that way were the dens where he kept the big cats, the tiger and the lion that would, if they were, in fact, living, breathing agitators behind this, trying to make him look like a monkey, more than adequately settle their hash. His first night back from Lost Lake, he took to the tower roof to survey his domain and sweep the security spotlights around the grounds. He had a modest little gun nest up there, the surplus ack-ack artfully tucked in among the parapets. He was watching some movement in the bushes just beyond the boathouse, it was probably nothing, or just the cats. Usually they stayed caged in their dens, but they did need to roam some, or they got stir-crazy, and sometimes, when it seemed safe, the handlers let them out. There had been a hobo jungle growing nearby, adjacent to the property, and once they started letting the lion and tiger take the air, the camp had pretty much folded up and moved on down the tracks. He'd missed the cats out at the lodge, jungle animals you could see at least, not like them voices. It was easier to clear your mind up here, and he was starting to wonder if maybe voices didn't mean Jack. Voices couldn't do anything, really. Haint-wise, it could be worse. It wasn't like he was seeing bedsheet-type haints, floating through walls and rattling chains in his face and chasing him through a graveyard, like when the kiddies did their trick-or-treating. Yeah, voices probably couldn't touch him, especially 150 miles away. And a little later in the story... The sun had long since set while he'd been yakking with the missus, but the moon was out, big and bright as a searchlight. He couldn't recall if the cats were loose tonight. There was supposed to be a schedule. Out back, the grass was wet and long, and he strode to her little house and rapped on her door. It was dark inside, and there was no answer. He let himself in, whispering that it was just him, ma, uh, just Harry. He couldn't get the lights to work, but could make out in the moonlight shafting in Chairs draped in sheets and what looked like the old patio set. They were storing stuff in there now? Since when? It looked like there was part of a hammock stand and a stepladder and a croquet set. He could picture breaking someone's hands with a big wooden mallet once, the bones cracking like a lobster dinner, the blood spraying back on him, ruining his bow tie. He couldn't remember the face, but the hands he could see now better than the face of his own mother. He couldn't remember if it had been a croquet mallet or what. But this here, this was all wrong. He needed to lamb it, right now. No time for cars and conversations. He could smell the river, that upchuck algae smell, and heard its lapping and the shush upstream of the Dixborough Dam. He heard movement in the grass, and a single cluck, those reincarnated chickens, had to be. 
It was possible, he supposed, that there weren't any haints, at least not the kind that floated up like a vapor, gases rising from an unmarked grave that came after you from the land beyond for payback. But either way, he had to get to the boat and get the hell out of there. Thank you. And for the Michigan storytelling segment, that was Steve Amick reading a collection of stories titled Ghost Writers, Us Haunting Them, Contemporary Michigan Literature. Thank you for tuning into Exposure tonight. I'm Emmanuel Berry, and may the force be with you. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure. 